0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Oh, uh, the seven, the seven years war has come up before on the podcast, right? It is, it was essentially a world war that spanned from 1756 to 1763. And it was part of a very, very long arc of conflict between Britain and France. (laughs) That arc was so long. But I just want to mention again that like one time you and I joked that there should be a website that was like was England at war with France.com. You could just put in a year and the website would tell you and two different listeners obligingly made that website for us. We will link to them in the show notes So the North American theater of the Seven Years' War is known as the French and Indian War. And it was initially sparked over the question of who should control the Ohio River Valley, whether that was Britain or France. France formed alliances with a number of Native American peoples and nations, thus the name the French and Indian War. Uh, It's relatively northern in terms of... Like what gets the most screen time when people are talking about the French and Indian War. Really, the northern part of Britain and France's colonies in North America are where like, most of the battles took place, most of the maps really focus on that part, uh, ranging from northern Virginia and Maryland up through Nova Scotia and Quebec and what's now Canada. But that is not the only place that this conflict was going on, and today we are going to talk about a more southern part of it, which was the Anglo-Cherokee War, which went from 1759 to 1761.
0: Prior to Europeans' arrival in North America, the Cherokee lived in much of what would later become the southeastern United States. That includes North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. And when European colonists began settling in these areas, the Cherokee and the many other Native American tribes and nations who were living in this part of the world were forced into progressively smaller territory. Introduced diseases, including a smallpox outbreak in 1698, reduced their population as well.
1: By the first half of the 18th century, the Cherokee nation was not really established as one formal monolithic entity. It comprised about 60 towns in and around the southern Appalachian Mountains. Most of these settlements were situated in river valleys to take advantage of the rich soil there, while also having access to places to hunt animals like deer. As the Cherokee developed closer economic ties to the British colonies, deer hunting and the selling of deer hides became an increasingly important part of their way of life. A lot
0: of this area can be hard to get to. So for a time, these towns had less and less frequent contact with European colonists than areas that were more readily accessible. The Appalachian Mountains formed a natural barrier that offered the Cherokee a degree of protection from both introduced diseases and the colonists themselves. Basically, for a while, epidemics tended to strike Cherokee communities a little bit later than they did other Native American peoples, and its population had more time to recover between them.
1: Consequently, by the turn of the 18th century, the Cherokee people's population was roughly 20,000, and this included a fighting force of about 6,000. By comparison, in 1720, neighboring South Carolina had a total population of approximately 9,000 white colonists and 12,000 enslaved Africans, while North Carolina had roughly 10,000 white colonists and about 3,000 enslaved Africans. You'll see some variations in these numbers if you go to research what the population was in the southern colonies. There just was not a lot of official counting in this part of the continent until the 1790 census, which was much later. (laughs)
0: Yeah, when everybody is estimating, their numbers are never quite going to match up.
1: Yeah, I, Uh, I kept trying to find something more precise, and I got lots of wildly different estimates. Yeah, but things
0: really started to shift for the Cherokee people in the 1730s and 1740s. In 1738, a massive smallpox epidemic cut its population approximately in half. The total Cherokee fighting force was still larger than those of its most immediate native neighbors, but the colonial populations had continued to grow as well. Soon, the white populations of both North Carolina and South Carolina each outnumbered the population of the Cherokee Nation.
1: Plus, this same mountain region that had offered the Cherokee some protection from its colonial neighbors Uh, had sort of turned into this buffer between British territory and French territory, with the Cherokee community itself forming part of that buffer. It was physically positioned between the colonial influences of two massive empires, with each of them trying to expand.
0: This mountainous geography also made it hard for the nation to act as a unified front when dealing with increasing pressure from its British and French neighbors. Mountains and valleys roughly separated the nation's settlements into groups known as towns. The overhill towns, the valley towns, out towns, middle towns, and lower towns. The words and descriptions of these regions varied among Cherokee dialects, and consequently there has been some level of debate about exactly how to classify them. At least three different dialects of the Cherokee language had developed among these towns.
1: And it wasn't just the lay of the land that created divisions among the Cherokee. The Cherokee themselves were not particularly centralized or monolithic at this point. For the most part, each town had its own council, with the council house large enough for the whole town to assemble. But even in one single town where everyone spoke the same Cherokee dialect, further divisions often appeared among the Cherokee's seven matrilineal clans. Clan loyalty was often a lot more important than town loyalty, so if the council made a decision that the clan didn't agree with, the clan's members typically stuck together. Although the colonial governments
0: in North America often recognized one particular Cherokee leader as being the chief over the entire nation, there wasn't really a unified nation yet, and this person often wasn't someone who was universally recognized as a leader among all of the towns. This contributed to even more divisions, as the British held negotiations with someone who didn't actually speak for the Cherokee as a whole.
1: By the mid-1740s, this relatively decentralized Cherokee nation was really caught in the middle of a huge storm of pressures. The Cherokee lower towns were at war with the Muscogee Creek Nation for about 40 years, ending in 1755, The proximity of Spanish territory to the newly chartered colony of Georgia had raised fears among the British that the Spanish would start a slave uprising with the ultimate goal of taking over Georgia and South Carolina in its aftermath.
0: France and Britain became more overtly hostile toward one another as France began trying to establish settlements in the Ohio Valley and generally doing a much better job of forming alliances with native nations than Britain was doing. The Cherokee had, for the most part, sided with the British, but the British worried that they would be
1: swayed to the
0: French side.
1: And the Cherokee Nation had become increasingly dependent upon British economic interests through trade, specifically the trade in deer hides. That market at this point was becoming oversaturated and white-tailed deer were being overhunted, and this was affecting both the Cherokee economy and its food supply. Part of this was due to an increasing number of white colonists who were settling in Long Canes, which was a stretch of territory that was supposed to belong to the Cherokee, the Cherokee following a 1730 treaty. There were also widespread reports of fraud by, by British traders when the Cherokee came to sell these deer hides, like r- reports of, say 12 pounds of hide being reported as only 10 pounds. Through the
0: 1740s and 1750s, there were numerous negotiations and treaties between the Cherokee towns and the British colonies, especially South Carolina, outlining land use, trading relationships, and sovereignty. They also involved a number of requests from several directions to build forts in Cherokee Territory. One was Fort Prince George under the command of Lachlan McIntosh in the Lower Territory. The other was Fort Loudon in Upper Cherokee Territory.
1: All these things that we've just talked about really just scratch the surface. It's a glimpse into this huge confluence of pressures and disputes that were already in the works when the war broke out. Conflicts between colonists and Native Americans, and we're talking about American history, are often depicted as just being about land. But this was way more complicated than that. We will talk about the war that resulted after a brief word from a sponsor. Spring and summer of 1757, diplomatic relations between Britain and the Cherokee towns were really starting to crumble. In Cherokee territory, colonists from Britain had been encroaching further and further into Long Canes, which, as we said before, was supposed to be Cherokee territory. Also, there wasn't a centralized system among the colonies to negotiate
0: treaties between Britain and the native peoples. It was all basically on a colony by colony basis. In the process of trying to secure a trading relationship with Virginia, the Cherokee had sent about 250 fighters as part of a larger, larger native force to help protect the Virginia frontier from French expansion. This fighting force had arrived in Virginia to find themselves without the presence of provisions and weapons that
1: they had been promised and without a guide. This lack of provisions was a twofold problem. Obviously, it meant that the Cherokee force did not have the supplies that they needed to do what they were there for. But in addition to that, the Cherokee's cultural view was that these presents were a symbolic seal on their agreement with Britain to provide aid to Virginia. So by failing to deliver, Britain had broken its end of the bargain and not for the first time. This prompted the Cherokee force to take what they needed from plantations that they passed and, according to at least one account, to kill a member of another tribe who objected to what they were doing.
0: Then, that November, four lower towns Cherokee hunters were killed by white colonists from Long Canes. These killings were incredibly gruesome. The bodies had been scalped and the perpetrators also stole and sold the skins from their victims' deer.
1: Following the terms of their 1730 treaty with Britain, the Cherokee petitioned South Carolina Governor William Henry Littleton for justice. The governor's response was, from the Cherokee point of view, not satisfactory at all. He said that if the guilty party were found, they would, of course, be punished, but that he couldn't condone an innocent person being punished for something that he wasn't actually personally involved with.
0: The Cherokee worldview was that Britain was collectively responsible for the killings, and so Britain needed to be brought to justice. But Britain's point of view was that such justice was only possible if the individual guilty parties were actually found. The governor also avoided the issue of colonial encroachment into Long Cane's entirely. This idea of collective responsibility and justice was a huge factor in the Cherokee's perspective on the war.
1: The following March, five Virginia colonists were killed in what may have been an act of revenge, although there's some documentation to suggest that it was actually sparked by the theft of horses. This apparent act of retribution, though, set off a series of violent incidents between the Cherokee fighting force and Virginia colonists, with approximately 20 Cherokee being killed in Virginia. This
0: stoked massive anti-British sentiment in the Cherokee Nation. And on September 17th, 1758, the lower town's Cherokee informed Lachlan McIntosh at Fort Prince George that they were sending a war party to Virginia for revenge.
1: McIntosh
0: sent word to Governor Littleton and convinced the Cherokee to wait for his answer.
1: Littleton's response arrived in October, and in it he did promise restitution for the Cherokee who had been killed in the form of gifts. But he fell back once again to the British worldview of needing to find the individual culprit before administering justice. He also admonished the Cherokee Nation for not taking its complaints to Francis Fauquier, who was the lieutenant governor of Virginia. And Governor Littleton stressed that the Cherokee Nation had no right to declare war on the entire colony of Virginia for the actions of a few people.
0: Even though it wasn't a particularly satisfactory answer from the Cherokee perspective, this letter, combined with the efforts of Cherokee leaders to maintain calm, did lead to an uneasy peace, which lasted until the following February of 1759. The winter had been quite difficult, and most of the Cherokee towns were low on supplies and poorly armed. Word reached the Cherokee Nation that Atta a leader who had a reputation for negotiation and peace building, had been treated poorly by the British while he was in Virginia. He and his party were still away. And while they were gone, further rumors began to spread that Britain was going to
1: attack the now poorly defended Cherokee Nation directly. However, when Atakulakula returned home in March, he smoothed things over. He sort of downplayed what had been admittedly not very great treatment in Virginia. Uh, and after a series of councils that lasted into April, it seemed like the Cherokee and the British would continue to be at peace, if kind of uneasily.
0: But then, on April 25th and 26th of 1759, a renegade Cherokee fighting force attacked a series of settlements in North Carolina along the Yadkin and Catawba Rivers, killing and scalping as many as 20 colonists, including children. The majority of headmen in the Cherokee Nation did not condone this series of raids and denounced them outright. Ataculacula, who was in the middle of trying to negotiate a greater peace with Virginia, suspected that these raids were a deliberate attempt to undermine his efforts.
1: This act of violence against North Carolina, though, led Governor Littleton of South Carolina to implement a trade embargo against the Cherokee Nation, meaning that the Cherokee could no longer buy the ammunition that they needed to hunt deer or sell the hides of the deer back to South Carolina. As we said earlier, South Carolina was their biggest trading partner at this point. And this trade had become a big staple of the Cherokee economy. And consequently, deer who were being hunted for their hides to sell had become a major food source. So this embargo was disastrous.
0: A delegation of peacemakers went to Littleton in Charlestown, which would later be Charleston, to try to work out an agreement in October of 1759. Littleton refused to accept the deer hides the delegation had brought as a gift and then took the delegation hostage, saying he would only release them in exchange for the Cherokee who had committed the April raids in North Carolina.
1: This really flew in the face of diplomatic protocols. Uh, and this delegation, under armed guard, was being brought back to Fort Prince George when they encountered a second peace delegation that was also en route to Charlestown, representing different Cherokee towns, Littleton and his men captured most of this second delegation as well. Although four of the of the Cherokee headmen escaped, having seen these other delegates from the first uh, delegation under armed guard, they returned to Cherokee territory with the report that the headsmen from multiple Cherokee towns were being treated as slaves. Uh, there was, prior to contact with the Europeans, not a lot of different difference between the terms prisoner and slave in most Cherokee dialects. So this basically led to a huge rumor that Britain was going to come and enslave all of the Cherokee.
0: And not long after Littleton finally arrived in Fort Prince George in December, a smallpox epidemic weakened his already exhausted force. The epidemic then spread through the diplomats and the Cherokee hostages in the fort.
1: At first, Atakulakula kept trying to negotiate a peace, and he was able to free part of the delegation in exchange for the promise that four of the people involved in that North Carolina attack would surrender themselves. In the end, though, those four refused to go, and Atakulakula had to go into hiding with his family. The freed hostages also became bitterly resentful of Britain for having imprisoned them in the first place.
0: Following the deaths of several Cherokee hostages due to smallpox in the fort, this ongoing series of incidents blossomed into an all-out war. Beginning in January and February of 1760, the Cherokee laid siege to Fort Prince George and
1: Fort Loudon and massacred colonists in the surrounding frontier settlements. The worst of these massacres was on February 1st, 1760, when a band of Cherokee fighters attacked a caravan of Scots-Irish colonists who were retreating from their settlement in Long Canes. Uh, These colonists were trying to get back to Fort Moore near Augusta, Georgia. About a 100 Cherokee attacked roughly 150 fleeing colonists, killing 23 of them, including John C. Calhoun's grandmother, Catherine On February 16th, a party of Cherokee
0: headmen went to Fort Prince George to parlay with Lieutenant Richard Coitmore, who was then in command. And once lured out of the fort, Coitmore was ambushed. Several in his party were injured, and Coitmore ended up dying of his wounds. British soldiers in the fort went to make sure this wasn't an escape attempt. One was killed and another wounded by the prisoners. In response, the British force opened fire and killed 14 Cherokee leaders who had been imprisoned there.
1: Following this massacre of Cherokee diplomats at Fort Prince George, Cherokee raids against the colonists in and around the Appalachian Mountains increased. Most of the Cherokee towns that had been against war with Britain wound up joining the battle as well. Because
0: much of Britain's fighting force in North America was, at this point, devoted to fighting in the French and Indian War's more northern theater, Britain's initial attempts to win the war were small and unsuccessful. Reinforcements were called in from North Carolina and with a force from Fort Dobbs and Bathabra attempting to resist the Cherokee and rescue colonists. Colonel Archibald Montgomery, sent in from New York, destroyed several Cherokee villages in the lower towns and attempted to do the same in the middle towns. But on June 27th, he was defeated by a Cherokee ambush. Believing he had at that point done as ordered, Montgomery and his force withdrew.
1: He was basically like, I think I've done what they asked me to do, so I'm going to leave now. Another relief force commanded by Colonel William Byrd attempted to relieve the besieged Fort Loudoun in July, but also failed. The fort eventually surrendered to the Cherokee force besieging it, and many of the British force stationed there wound up being massacred in return for the Cherokee delegates who had been previously massacred earlier at Fort Prince George. Lieutenant Colonel
0: James Grant arrived in Charlestown, South Carolina, which again is now Charleston, in January of 1761. He and a fighting force of nearly 3,000, the largest that Britain had sent in response to the fighting in Cherokee territory, began to systematically move through the territory. Grant's force destroyed at least 15 Cherokee towns, mostly among the middle and out towns, and destroyed uh, nearly 1,500 acres of corn.
1: At this point, after three years of fighting, a coalition of eight headmen from the Overhill towns sued for peace. They brought beads from each of the remaining Cherokee towns as a show that they did have the right to speak for the whole nation. A peace treaty between the Cherokee Nation and Virginia was signed on July 20th of 1761, and one with South Carolina was signed on December 18th of 1761. Uh, and we will talk about the aftermath of all this after another brief word from a sponsor.
0: The population of the Cherokee Nation was, obviously, dramatically affected by the Anglo-Cherokee War, both through losses in battle and through the widespread destruction of towns and crops. About a third of the Cherokee population died during the war and in its immediate aftermath. And over the next 15 years, basically right up until the start of the Revolutionary War, the nation gradually ceded nearly 50,000 square miles of land to Britain.
1: This war also helped solidify the Cherokee Nation into a more centralized leadership structure. During the destruction of so many towns in the Cherokee territory, a lot of Cherokee uh, basically became refugees. And so communities that had previously been separated by geography started living together. In the subsequent years, the idea of needing a principal chief who could officially speak for the whole nation started to take hold. And the uh, the Cherokee Nation as an actual official formal entity was formed in 1794.
0: The war affected the Anglo colonists as well. The fighting led to evacuations, often to British forts that then became overcrowded, which led to disease. Enslaved Africans also took the opportunity to escape during this chaos, and the number of escapes during this time roughly doubled.
1: As we noted at the top of the show, the Anglo-Cherokee War was connected to the French and Indian War, and when that greater war ended in 1763, Britain wound up with control of Canada and Florida, as well as previously held French territory east of the Mississippi River, This meant that the Cherokee Nation was no longer in this position of being surrounded by three different colonial governments. But instead, the acquisition of this land started paving the way for Britain's later expansion into and through Cherokee territory. This expansion would eventually culminate in the Indian Removal Act of 1830 after which the Cherokee and other tribes and nations in the area, including the Muscogee Creek, the Seminole, the Choctaw, and the Chickasaw, were all forcibly removed to Oklahoma. There were also a lot of people who resisted the Removal Act, and that is why, for example, there uh, is an eastern band of the Cherokee that's headquartered in North Carolina, and then two other federally recognized Cherokee tribes that are headquartered in Oklahoma.
0: And while you were researching, uh I think you found a, a quote that kind of artfully sums up all of this.
1: Yeah, it's in the words of James Adair, who published a book on North America's Native American populations in 1775. And he said, quote, we forced the Cherokee to become our bitter enemies by a long train of wrong measures. Uh, that's the Anglo-Cherokee War. It's, this is one of those episodes that, as I got into it, just kept turning out to be a more and more complicated tangle of more and more factors.
0: Yeah, there's so much back and forth to it. Yeah. You know, like, it's such a an escalation that happens in these tiny steps that are sort of blooming into larger and larger scenarios that... Uh, yeah. Um,
1: well, and then later on, a number of the, the British officials who had been involved in it were like, that was the wrong move. <laughs> like. Not that that helped at all, but right. like the 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 hindsight, they were like that we could have prevented that if we had done these things differently. Oh. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I wanted to do some more Native American history and I wanted to do some Cherokee history that was not the removal, because I feel like that's the part that a lot of people learn, especially yeah. if you're from North Carolina or Oklahoma. Um, But yeah, even so, that's still just a huge, complicated tangle. I'm hoping you have peppy listener mail. I do. Well, it's at least it's much funnier than this. So this is one of many notes that we have gotten along these same lines. I just picked one of them. This one's from Will, uh, because we had asked in our episode on butter versus margarine, if somebody from, uh, from Wisconsin could just confirm the thing that we had had trouble confirming, which is whether it's still illegal to (laughs) serve (laughs) margarine in a restaurant. Uh, and this is one of those things where after lots of people sent me the link, when I tried Googling the same thing, I was like, there it is. Why was this not there when I tried before we recorded? So Will says, uh, I just want to confirm that, yes, Wisconsin still has laws on the books regarding margarine with penalties that include fines and imprisonment up to a year. May I present to you Wisconsin State Statute 97.18. So he says, as a native Scotty, I'm constantly reminded about 97.184 when I travel outside the state and stop for breakfast. I look for butter, for my toast, and all I can find on the table is margarine. Whereas in Wisconsin, per statute, you would never find any margarine on a table in a restaurant. I also vividly recall in the early 1980s, sitting around my grandmother's kitchen table and hearing all the family stories of Oleo smuggling trips to those gas stations in Illinois. As a kid, I thought my leg was being pulled. Alcohol running during Prohibition. Now that makes sense. But running margarine? And then he sends Will. Uh, So, yes, thank you to Will and all the other folks who sent me the actual name of the statute. I, like I said, I'm not sure. Why I had so much trouble finding it while I was researching the thing. It's possible because it's some time has passed that I did find it and I wasn't sure if that law was still in effect or not, because sometimes state governments like haven't updated the website yet to include the things that have been recently uh, removed. So yeah, I, I, this, this act basically spells out number one, exactly what margarine is, including what color it is on the Lovebond tendometer that we've talked about before. Uh, and then it sets all of these things about how if you want to sell margarine retail, it has to be packaged. It has to be a pound. There has to have the words oleomargarine or margarine on it with a specific type. And like, there has to be enough contrast with the background. You can't like, use really pale lettering to have the word margarine on there. Um, and it gets into this whole bit about how in public eating places, it has to be required by customers. Um, you also can't serve it to students, patients or inmates of state institutions as, as a uh, substitute for butter. And like, unless there is a specific reason like ordered by a physician um, and then it gets into the fines and possible imprisonment. So Thank you, Will, and all the other folks who sent us the information that, yes, this law is still actually in effect. If you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is History. And you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com to find uh, show notes for this episode and all the other episodes Holly and I have worked on together plus an archive of every episode ever. You can also come to our parent company's website which is HowStuffWorks.com to look up just about anything your heart desires. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com